You know what happens when you flip a light switch? How many people, dollars, and computers are involved to charge your smartphone? Do you understand the policy implications, political landmines, and local issues as we transition to clean energy? Well, we're here to answer those questions and more. Welcome to No Power. Hosted by informed industry experts Noha Sidholm and Michael Borgatti, No Power is all about demystifying the entire energy industry without getting into the politics, getting you more involved in the discussion, and empowering you with knowledge to make an intelligent choice today and the future. Head on over to nopowershow.com or wherever you get your podcasts so you can listen and subscribe and never miss an episode. And now, here are your hosts, Noha and Michael. Hi, folks. Welcome to No Power. Really excited today. We've got Caitlin Smith, who is the Vice President of Policy and Corporate Communications for a utility-scale battery storage developer, owner-operator called Jupiter Power. Caitlin's great. She's been in the industry for quite some time with a number of different roles. Prior to joining Jupiter, she was engaged as what we would call independent market monitor for Texas's wholesale power market, which is called ERCOT monitoring the markets, watching how everybody interacts to make sure that there's not anti-competitive behavior, that the markets are functioning as efficiently as possible. And she brings that to her current role, where she also manages communications for Jupiter. So really interesting perspective on markets, how markets are working, how markets are regulated, and really how battery storage sort of fits into these systems today and what we think they're going to look like in the energy space in the future. Yeah, and Caitlin is a real powerhouse. And Mike, as you mentioned, she's been working actively on Texas issues and on other ISO issues as well, but she really started in Texas working for the market monitor pretty much right around the time that that market went live for competition. It's a really interesting state to do work in. There's no capacity market, so it's energy only, some volatility in those energy prices, a great retail competition program. Texas consumers generally are paying some of the lowest prices in the country. And she was really instrumental, I think, to the architecture of all of that when it was happening. So a great podcast for our listeners to listen to. I'm really excited for you guys to hear her feedback on everything that's happened in the last decade or two. Definitely. Hope you guys enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to No Power. Thanks for listening. Today, we're interviewing Caitlin Smith. Welcome, Caitlin. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So maybe it would be really good for us to start with you just telling us a little bit more about your background as well as what Jupiter Power is focused on today. All right. So I'm at Jupiter Power. We are a developer and also an owner and operator of utility scale battery energy storage assets. And so we're talking about very big, like in the hundreds of megawatts. We're using battery storage technology right now. I think we're open to looking at all kinds of storage, but we're looking at big projects and we're looking at standalone projects even before the IRA kind of our thinking was that there's a real opportunity for these as standalone assets, not just co-located with wind or solar. We've been able to get several of those projects online in Texas, a few more in construction in Texas right now, and a few more in construction in, in other states as well. I believe in, in California and Virginia, and then we have a development pipeline sort of across the whole country. So we're excited to continue what we're doing. So tell us a little bit about your career trajectory to get to this point, because obviously you've had a lot of experience leading to this position. Yeah, my background is really in regulatory affairs policy side, but the bulk of that has been in ERCOT, which is the self-contained grid in Texas. 
you know, ERCOT has an energy market, which I don't know if we should get into that for listeners right now, but it's a sort of competitive style, complicated market. So because of that setup, I really have learned a lot about full scale market design as well as just kind of the policy side and how to advocate for things. So I have a background in in wholesale market design and policy from ERCOT. I worked with the market manager there. After that, I've worked in several different roles, some in consulting and, and usually focused on clean energy. I was consulting during Winter Storm Uri, probably doing something similar to what Mike does. And and I've had, you know, a decade of experience in kind of regulatory at ERCOT, worked with the market monitor there. You know, I, I've said it used to take me kind of 10 minutes to explain what my job was because I worked for <laughs> what's called the market monitor to that ERCOT market. Yeah. Um, and so then during Winter Storm Uri, all of a sudden everybody knows we have all these clients. So I, I got to do a lot of kind of varied work for different clients during that. I started doing some kind of public communications media stuff um, that I really enjoyed and sort of started to build on, on that part of the career, kind of explaining this stuff to consumers and to everyday people. Um, and then I really liked that. So as I looked at my next role, I made communications part of the job too. That's great. So market monitor, that's kind of like the police for the market, right? Yes, kind of. Um, it's a really complicated role, I think. And, and I used to ask my employers too how to describe it. I think it was something that was put in place to sort of police the market. It, it was a kind of post Enron reform, I believe. Yeah. It's, you know, in, in the word, it's independent market monitor. So you want somebody close to ERCOT, and it's not just ERCOT that has one. I think every ISO has one, whether internal or external. And so you want somebody close to the material, but with a separate point of view. And it's sort of half a policing role, but it's not a, you know, you're, you're not the governmental body. You can't write the ticket. You can advise on what the ticket should be. And then the other half of it is sort of a market design advisory role. So the committee of the roads should look like this to cause less accidents than the next. Yeah, got it. We had uh, we had Rob uh, Gramlich on for an earlier uh, episode here, and he was involved at FERC in the whole sort of aftermath of the California energy crisis, yeah. Enron uh, debacle there. And really, yeah, that market monitoring function grew out of that, right? It's this idea that you want to have an organization of people that are out there that are watching how the market participants are behaving and to make sure that they're behaving in competitive ways, right? That they're not manipulating market prices or things like that. So that it really is, a, it's a fair and competitive market. So if prices go up, it's because they go up organically. If they go down, it's because they go down organically, right? Yeah. That had to be a, an amazing role. You get to sort of know everybody's secrets, right? So it was an amazing role. It was my first role in the industry. Previous to that, I was doing oil and gas in Oklahoma. I did uh, work for Chesapeake and I was basically like a title attorney. So just title documents on, on parcels of land. And so I had been looking to come back to Austin. I had studied economics. I had gotten a law degree and then an LLM in natural resources. And um, so I had a little bit of background there. I met the, the then heads of the market monitor and we hit it off, but I knew nothing before that. You know, I had to kind of before the interview, I had to Google ERCOT. And, <laughs> you know, it was actually a good fit for the sure. role because I think if you have somebody experienced in the industry, 
than their experience from a certain point of view, right? And you don't want somebody in that independent market monitor role to be biased towards, you know, owning generation or biased towards trading energy or maybe even biased towards uh, a consumer because maybe what a consumer thinks is competitive maybe isn't in certain instances. And so they they were happy to have somebody with no experience in the industry. I don't think I looked at it as getting everybody's secrets, but I, I think I, it was a pretty high visibility role that I, I thought was a really good opportunity and, and still think it was a really good opportunity. I really liked how you said we can't issue the ticket but we can advise on what the ticket should look like or maybe what the, you know, the framework of it should be, you know, what could cause less accidents on the road. Because I think that is a really important function of the market monitor is what are the systematic problems and how can we resolve them? And I think that sometimes gets lost in the discussion. I think that's more of a role, actually, um, as it is now. I think you see less I think there are very few instances, right? You don't you don't have a Emeron all the time where there are really people with a case of market manipulation or, you know, there, there's limited people who can even have market power. So I think mm-hmm. the role has become more of an advisory on what's the, the best design. Yeah. And I certainly think that's a very productive and necessary role. You also talked about how Texas is an energy only market. Can we explain that a little bit to our listeners? I think Mike should do it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, making me walk the plane over there, Caitlin. You know, it comes back to this a lot because I think people hear market, but it's sort of hard to wrap your head around when you're talking about a, a commodity like energy, which is, you know, power is something people need um, to live, basically. So I think it's harder to wrap your head around because I always have to go back to it with, with reporters and other people. So you really are relying on a market to get your energy. I think it's as simple as that. You are relying on where supply and demand meet to create the price. And so you have your suppliers, Mm -hmm. which are your generators, and you could be wind, solar, a a battery like we are, gas, coal, and then your your buyers, which are usually not the end use customer themselves. Sometimes, you know, the the industrial customer, but usually like the retailer who represents them. And so you're just really relying on market signals to provide the market with the energy it needs. In theory, you're not mandating, you know, like the, the opposite would be a, a capacity market, which you still use market, but you're you're not mandating to the generators you have to build X. You're relying on what consumers want to buy or need to buy to, to tell the generators you need to build X. So, so like the idea, for example, would be that energy prices in this market, if they go high enough for long enough, that should tell an investor, hey, build another generator here, right? Because power is going scarce. And that signal in and of itself is supposed to tell folks to deploy different kinds of assets. And also those investors are supposed to say, you know what, the best way to respond would be with a battery as opposed to with a coal plant or something else that's out there as a result of uh, what they're seeing in the market conditions. Does that sound about right to you, Caitlin? Yep. I think the thing I'd emphasize is you want that price to indicate not only, hey, come online right now, right? You know, we we need X generator to provide us energy right now, but you want it also to signal, we need you to build more generation. Mm -hmm. 
So it's like, sort of you mean purposes. like you can believe in it yeah. over the long term, mm-hmm. right? It's like this isn't a momentary spike in prices. This is a durable signal because these assets are going to be around for 20, 30, maybe even 40 years, right? So you need to have a view. I think so. The assets are got are 60 or 70 years old, right? Sure. Yep. There certainly are. There are definitely some that are that old that are out there. So let's fast forward into into batteries, like a relatively all else equal, fairly modern technology for these markets, right? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's a it's a modern technology. It's a instantaneous technology. I, I think that they have come about pretty quickly. I think it's something that you heard, you know, what what's the saying? It's like it's it's always three years away, and then all of a sudden <laughs> it was yesterday. I feel like I think. I don't know what the country numbers are in ORCOT. I think it's it's 3,000 megawatts of batteries, three gigs. Um, I don't know how to convert that into terms for the listener. You know, I, I in Texas, I usually say we've been working on the Lubbock transition for a long time. I think that's 500 megawatts at peak. So you're talking about, you know, six good-sized cities worth of, of batteries coming online in just a couple of years. So it is new, but I feel like it kind of quickly exploded. So can you talk a little bit about what drove that investment and what, especially before the IRA? You know, I think Jupiter really wanted to kind of prove this theory that you could align um, what makes you money with what is good and clean for the environment. And I think, so in Texas, we do have this energy-only market. Even to take it a step farther than that, the, the price signals you get in that market that are telling you to to build the generation and how much are very specific. They're nodal, which you guys know what that means, but it's, mm-hmm. it's very specific locations. And so in Texas, we can get a price signal that is specific to the point where at this point in West Texas, we have too much generation at 2 a.m. because of the wind, but not enough at 5 p.m. because of the load here and the transmission constraints. And the, and the heat. And so that is a good signal for something like a battery where you need to charge, so consume energy when there is that 2 a.m. high wind. And then you can provide more energy in that same spot when there's that 5 p.m. need. And so I think ERCOT is kind of the perfect market to sort of prove that theory. And so I think that's part of why, why it happens so quickly in ERCOT. You know, certainly I think the competition helps it's, it's easier to interconnect, I believe, in ERCOT. The, the queue process is a lot easier or, or sort of non-existent, I think, compared to other places. And so I think that's why you're able to see that pretty quickly. So do you think now that the Inflation Reduction Act has been put into place, do you think that's driving you guys sort of expansion in other states? Is that providing the economic incentive that maybe other markets weren't providing before? For us, I think it is firming up other revenue lines. I think we, you know, very much believe in in battery storage technology and what it can do for the grid before the IRA. And I will say, right, if you were waiting until last summer to take a signal to build batteries, I don't think you're getting one online anytime soon. You know, there there's supply chain issues. You have to get through the supply chain. There's queue issues, as I said, in other places like ERCOT. You know, these projects we've had in development, they're not online yet. But the the queue process and then the interconnect process, and we can break that down further if you you want. But the interconnect process takes years, as as I think you know, Mike. And so oh, yeah. we wouldn't be seeing anything online, or even really probably in any kind of late stage development 
that happened because of the IRA right now, I don't believe. Yeah. And if you think, I mean, if you think about it to your point on the queue, if you were to submit an interconnection application in most places today, they're talking about a target timeline that's usually around two to three years to complete that that interconnection process. And systemically, every one of these interconnection processes takes way longer than that. For example, California ISO has taken and suspended their queue. It's actually taken them two years longer than they anticipated it would to be able to complete that. They're not even finished. And so, you know, to your point, Caitlin, if you were sitting there going like, hot dog, the IRA has signaled that I should invest and today you're going to move forward, just to get out of the queue, you're probably four plus years, right? Away from being able to to get that battery in a place where it can interconnect and start participating in these markets. So I think what it's done for us, because we have the foresight to do all that, is just give us more opportunities with the revenue. Um, you know, I, I won't attempt to explain like tax equity, but I, I think there is there's more opportunities for kind of different revenue streams, right? And ERCOT most of these batteries were running merchant or, you know, uncontracted mm-hmm. just based on what we were talking about, being able to capture those price signals and and really knowing that batteries are the right kind of technology to do that because of, you know, those differences in supply and demand throughout the day, the different types of resources, how that could work really well in ERCOT. But I think as you look to other markets, what something like the RRA does is help you firm up those other opportunities for different types of contracts. So, you know, we had the Texas freeze, winter storm Uri, and Texas was in the press nonstop. We're also dealing with a lot of heat in Texas right now. It just seems like it is the, you know, the perpetual heat wave. And you see a lot of press about what's happening in ERCOT. It would be really great with your ERCOT expertise to hear about what happened during the, the Texas freeze in that winter and what policy changes and discussions have happened to benefit us today. Oh boy. Um, can we take it in chats? Can you guys help me kind of break that up? That's a lot of questions. Yes. Let's talk about what happened during the Texas freeze. Like where did things go wrong and sort of what was the impetus of the problem? You know, I, I think a lot of different things went wrong. It was winter. We're not used to having a winter peak in Texas. And so I think the kind of unusualness of that, you know, besides losing power, we're not used to ice on the roads. There weren't things to, you know, fix the ice on the roads. Mm-hmm. So people who needed to fix things related to power plants couldn't get there. And we had really focused on building our resources for the kind of summer system. And so when you're talking about summer, it is really hot right now, but maybe you say a typical temperature is 70 degrees. So we're plus 30 if you're talking about winter, like a Yuri, we're, we're at eight degrees, maybe less. So you're really, you're not wanting to make up a 30 degree difference. You're wanting to make up a 60 degree difference. And over, I think, four sustained days, I know less about this too. I used to have really good talking points on this. But in Texas, I think it's about half and half with electric heating and, and gas heating in homes. And I think we still, you see it, Landon the year after, and then Elliot the the year after that, there were huge forecast miss and misses in both cases. Again, um, you know, one was actually over forecast and load, but one was another under forecast. And I think there's just a lack of understanding on how to forecast that load from electric heating. Right? I think it's pretty easy right now to say it's 110 degrees out. 
We have however many years of experience with this. We know that the electric air conditioning air conditioning load is going to look like X. I don't think we know how to do that with the electric heating load. And so as those circumstances, there were some gas supply issues, I think was it was a big part of it because there's still that need to serve, you know, residential gas. So you need gas direct for residential consumers as well. And so you have to balance the priorities between getting gas to those folks, getting gas to electric generators. And so there are a mm-hmm. lot of electric generators um, that run on gas that just couldn't get gas because either it was frozen or um, the pipelines were curtailed because of human needs, things like that. I think that there was a couple of like really important points in there that I want to try to break out a little bit for our listeners here because Yuri and the blackouts and the really high prices and things like that is has been highly politicized and it gets used even today to justify all sorts of different things that are out there. But one thing that you said is really important, like we didn't design this power grid and these power plants to operate consistently at very, very cold temperatures. And like to use sort of an extreme example, imagine how people build a combined cycle in Alaska, right? It's in a box. It's got all sorts of insulation. It's designed to live in a place that's going to be cold and snowy most of the time, right? Yeah. When you're, and you do that in response to that environment, there's a cost associated with that, right? When you go to Texas, you look at balancing what the weather's going to be like with those winterization needs. Those plants almost look like the weeds in your yard that like, you know, they're not very compact. They're super spread out, right? Because that's from a cost efficiency perspective, a cheaper way to build that facility. The quid pro quo there is that when it gets really cold, they don't necessarily work, right? And we also see that for different technologies like wind, for example, a wind plant that is in Alberta is designed very, very differently than a wind plant in Texas because they're going to respond to different conditions. And so when we start to talk about kind of what are some of these features that led to the challenges in ERCOT, the root cause decisions that were made along the way go much farther back than, hey, we just decided we wanted renewables or things like that. These were systemic to the way that we built the system from the ground up. Yeah, you know, I think it's a cost issue there. I, I will say in your example of the the box in Alaska, it's a cost issue, but it's it's more you have to fight two challenges, right? If it's 110 mm-hmm. degrees like it is right now, Totally. You don't want a combined cycle that's in a box because, in a box. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I right. think that becomes, you know, at, at best, very inefficient, at worst, very dangerous, probably. I don't know. Sure. Uh, but the, yeah, the, the cost is part of the issue, right? I I'd worked in this industry a long time before, before Yuri, mostly in Texas, though. So I don't think I had to use the term weatherization really at all. And it was something that popped up in the news, probably during a storm still when when we were still blacked out mm-hmm. because they were hearing about, you know, power plants in Alaska or in PJM that were weatherized and saying, well, why are they in Texas? And it's, I think, a combination of those two reasons. One, that weatherization would, you know, be extremely prohibitive during the summer and probably cause problems during the summer. So you kind of have to have, you know, two outfits for your plants in, in Texas, the, the summer version and the winter yeah. version. And then the cost, right? I think it's easy to say weatherization is sort of an operational issue where they just need to do this. But going back to the energy-only market, if you have a market construct where you are letting generators rely on just a market for revenue, it's really hard to mandate them to use that revenue for specific purposes. They're really going to fight back on that. 
And so I, I, you could you could use that as kind of a root cause for that lack of weatherization. Definitely, right? Because that that's the whole thought there is that in a competitive construct, if I design my plant one way and it has a cost structure, that could be my competitive advantage, mm-hmm. right? And that makes my plant fly in a better way than, than someone else's. Inherently, you, there's this tension between sort of mandating certain behaviors, but allowing for that that freedom, let's call it creativity or what have you, that, that investors would, would experience. So I entirely agree with that. And great point on winterization affecting you negatively in summer. It's just a whole huge optimization problem. I wanted to circle to your second point too, which is this load forecast error, because I think that this is something that is is really, really important. And I'd love your your perspective on this. But when I think about this energy only market, the, the prime there are two primary drivers for power prices. They're typically natural gas costs is one of them. And the second one is demand, right? Yeah. The more demand that you have, the higher prices go because you know you're buying more of that that commodity. But what we see is that folks that are out there that are thinking about purchasing gas that's very expensive during cold periods of time are looking to see whether that demand is indicating to them that the power prices are going to be there that are sufficient to cover that cost for them, right? They're going to have to buy a whole bunch of fuel to be able to run their power plant. They need to see power prices that return of and on that upfront investment. And in these extreme weather events, they miss by thousands of megawatts, right? ERCOT two days ago said it's all-time peak load at about 80,000 megawatts. You know, they were missing by 5,000-ish megawatts during during the storm. So you brought up something I maybe we should circle back on, but in in Texas, that fuel supply issue you're talking about, right? You you don't want to buy that input unless you know you're going to get certain prices. It's more complicated in ERCOT, I think, than in the FERC jurisdictional market. Because sure. those gas pipelines are regulated by somebody totally different. So you yes. could have the situation where the, they know you have a regulated price and they don't have a regulated price. And so I think that complicates that situation even more. And I think it did during your, right? We we had prices mm-hmm. set at the cap. You know, there are people who were opposed to that and, and people who are in favor of that. But what that does is tell everybody, you're for sure going to get this much when you sell power. And then if a market that is an input to that is regulated differently, and they say, they see that you're for sure going to get this X amount of revenue, they can, you know, change their behavior based on that. And then I think the, I think a winter forecast miss is different than a summer forecast problem. I think the winter miss, and this is not to criticize ISOs at all. You know, I think that's a, a really hard thing to do. And I think there's a line about, you know, it's it's similar to being a weatherman, right? You get you get paid to always be wrong because it's really hard to do. Yes. Um, I think there's just a lack of understanding on that electric heating load. And I think as we electrify more things, that seems to be kind of recurring in, in non-ERCOP markets as well, too. As I said, I think we have a huge data set on what the amount of demand increase is going to be if we use a lot of AC I don't think we have as big of a data set on what that's going to be if we use electric heat. I think the summer issue you're describing in Texas are people avoiding the peak. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is a good time to introduce that. But there's a mechanism where you basically get yeah. paid to avoid the the peak. Mm-hmm. And so I think those forecast misses there are because if you get paid to avoid that peak and ERCOT's telling you, hey, I think the peak's going to be tomorrow then you're not going to use power at that time. And so it's yeah. kind of the cyclical kind of thing that happens. 
So it's interesting because you talk about that missing the winter uh, forecast is a different set of problems. And what I'm really curious about is, you know, there were a lot of institutions that came out a little bit criticizing ERCOT after the fact because there were other services that predicted that it was going to be much colder than they were predicting. And, you know, you have a lot of academic institutions that even now with Winter Storm Elliott have said, we don't really understand why the ISOs keep getting their load forecasts wrong. There are some very sophisticated weather models out there. I think Microsoft was saying they had weather models that that were more accurate than what we saw during Winter Storm Yuri. And I'm just curious, do you think that the ISOs need more resources in that regard? Why has this been sort of a continuous problem for multiple years now? You know, I think the weather, I think it's a little bit different. You know, I I think even if they forecast their correct weather, I think there's just less understanding of kind of the human human behavior on how they're going to use electricity during that weather, right? I, I think summer is more straightforward. I, I think you can model that kind of as a block or a monolith, right? It's it's 110 degrees. You can assume that everybody's going to set their AC at 70 and you're probably going to come pretty close. I think it's harder to do that in winter because some people are using gas heat. Some people are using electric heat. Some, some people might still be setting their thermostat at 70. Some people might be fine at 58 or something. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's kind of how that applies to people using energy is is where the gap is, maybe not just the weather. I think extreme weather is is just a hard thing to understand too. I think it's supposed to be a hard thing to understand. And I think what makes it extreme is that you didn't forecast it. So I think there are always going to be these more challenges. And I think it just depends on, you know, going back to, to the what type of market thing how much risk do you want to put that you believe there's going to be that extreme weather versus the money you want to spend? Because, you know, right after Yuri, one of the proposals was for Berkshire Hathaway to get a rate of return to build these plants. And one of the amendments they proposed even said something like, we will build plants that, you know, perform in all types of extreme weather. Like, well, what what are those? Like, if you could tell us those, anybody could do that. But I think that's that's a big part of the challenge. Yeah. So let's take that step. So we had these big forecast misses. We had challenges with generator performance. We had very high loads. I think the those were all kind of root causes of the symptom that we saw, which was power prices were very, very high for, for a long period of time. And there's been a couple of reactions to that is I think that we see in Texas now, there's a lot of political activity, meaning a lot of attention, both from the utility commission as well as from, you know, legislature and governor's offices into changes that need to happen in response to this, both in terms of whether or not this market's working correctly, should prices go that high? Can you talk to us a little bit about the fallout? Like how how are we seeing the universe change or react to Yuri and how's that affecting kind of the decisions that are being made down in Texas? Oh my gosh. Um, so there's been, I, I think, a lot of fallout or a lot of things that happened since, you know, and, and some are good. I think we've made a lot of progress. Texas is in legislative session as a state for only six months every, you know, every other year. We happen to be in a legislative session when winter storm Yuri hit. Um, so there is a lot of scrambling for, for legislators to first identify the problems and then address them. 
And they get a lot of criticism and I've been complimentary before and I will be again because I just think that's a really hard job to learn. Um, and I think what you want to do as a legislature is, you know, you don't have the subject matter expertise, so you're not going to get it in a couple of months and you have to cover education and everything else. And so I think you want to identify what the problem is, address it and make sure everybody, make sure the subject matter experts do have the authority to change it. And I think you don't want to veer into kind of over legislation or over regulation. And so I think they did a really good job posteriori. We saw some fallout at the commission regarding the prices and it's still being argued. So what happened was, so we we have an energy only market going back to that. And so fundamental to it is that the price should tell you when generation is needed. And because of, I think, the way they count reserves or, or something, and because they de- they deployed their reserves, and so those got counted as reserves for for some kind of technical reason. We were not at that price cap when we in load shed, right? So we didn't have enough generation to the point we were cutting power off for people, you know, not voluntarily. And so you would say think that was a kind of definition of scarcity, but our prices weren't reflecting that. So what the commission did was they set the prices at the cap. There's been a lot of arguments over when kind of that that prices at the cap should have ended. Should it have ended sooner than it did is mostly what the argument is. That's still being litigated. So we've seen some fallout there. What they did kind of on the regulatory end since then with the prices was they lowered the price cap. It used to be a very high price, kind of potentially it used to be $9,000. But what you would see most years was, you know, $20 prices all the time and then maybe six hours a year of the $9,000 prices. And so it was by design a very kind of peaky system. What they did was bring that price cap down to $5,000. And they also, I think, put in a rule or a, a ERCOT protocol that you need to, those prices need to be at the cap when you're in true scarcity. So when you're shedding load. Yeah. And you mentioned this was still being litigated. You know, the most recent decision basically said that they didn't have the authority to do that. I assume that that will be appealed because uh-huh. they're really the only body that could have done that under those circumstances. So that was a, I think that decision really threw everybody for a loop in our industry. So I'll be very curious to see where this ends up. Yeah. What were your thoughts when you read that decision? I was on vacation. Um, (laughs) The decision didn't come out until March. We were on our, you know, like last pre-baby vacation. So I didn't read it all the way through. I think there's some questions there because I think you can say, this was not the right decision to make, right? You didn't have the authority to put prices at the cap. I guess it doesn't even get into whether they should have been. I don't think that means that the remedy is the market gets repriced. This repricing discussion was big and contentious, and they they thought about enacting legislation to kind of reverse the prices during that first session after Yuri. And that's what you mean by repricing, right? Is to take and say, so for what was it? We've got four or five really days, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Okay. No, 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 this is, no, this is great. So, so, so prices are like nine thousand dollars a megawatt hour for days on end. Yeah. Billions of dollars are shuffling hands, right? Loads are paying billions of dollars. Generators are getting paid billions of dollars. And the idea here was that essentially part of this litigation was, hey, the utility commission down in Texas, you didn't have the authority to set those prices for such a long period of time at that super high cap. 
So court, what I want you to do is to say, no, that was the wrong idea. You didn't have the authority. And because you made that decision, those folks that were making that argument would then say, now court direct essentially ERCOT to go back and to resettle them at a lower price, yeah. whatever that, that number ends up being. You can imagine that's huge shifts of dollars back and forth one way or another, super contentious because this has been playing out for quite a long time, right? Yeah. And so, you know, how do you kind of put that genie back in the bottle was a big piece of uh, what folks were, yeah, were thinking about, right? I, that would be my answer. I would say, you know, even if that's kind of like where the, whatever the scene is, like the solution is worse than the, the problem. It's like the, re- the remedy is more harmful. I think, you know, even if you don't think that decision was right, I think putting back the genie in the bottle is a lot more harmful. You know, know how you could speak to this more. It affects other markets, right? right? And I, I think those other markets cannot be resettled. Yeah. And, you know, there's bilateral contracts involved. There's large entities that went bankrupt due, due to those high prices in the storm. So do they get their money back and get to not be bankrupt? I think it, it's a lot of, a lot of more questions than answers. Having the ability to unwind something like that, which is why I was so surprised by the decision when I saw it. You're right. I mean, there is an entire futures market. There's bilateral contracts. And at the end of the day, all companies, whether you are a winner or a loser during winter storm, Yuri, what you really need for your business to continue and thrive is some sort of price certainty. So to have a court intervene over a year later and say, hey, now we're going to we, we want to undo all of this. I think is really problematic for anyone trying to run a business in this space. I think so too. I, you know, I think the unwinding would be more difficult. So that's, yeah. you know, I think the decision, and if they think that's right, I think I think that makes sense. But I don't think that necessarily means the remedy is that we go back and change all the prices. Yeah, I agree. So tell us now. Obviously, there was the Berkshire Hathaway proposal, but there were a lot of other ideas that were debated during this latest legislative session on how to aid the ERCOT market and kind of getting through this transition period and still being a leader in the energy transition. So can you talk a little bit about about that in this last legislative cycle? Sure. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Do you think their goal was to be a leader in the energy transition stuff? I feel like Texas has just always been an easier jurisdiction to do business in. That's right. And they've structured things like ERCOT with a high price cap, higher than any other market, to drive, I think, innovation and business to the state. So maybe not so much my goal is to be a leader in the energy transition, but my goal is to be a leader in the business world and certainly in the energy world. And now we just happen to be going through this transition. And so that's where the focus has been. I think that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I, I think one of the things post-Jury is that was a historic event and, and a lot of things changed, but a lot of things stayed the same. Mm-hmm. We, we had proposals that were variations of capacity markets. That is not the, the first time that discussion has come up in Texas. It's the third time probably and the decade I've been around. So I think it's sort of it's having something convenient a little bit, I think, to to make your argument for the capacity market. We have seen several variations of that. I think the first proposal was a was basically an obligation, so it was a not a centrally cleared market, but a bilateral where 
you would, if you represent a load, you would be required to have a certain amount of capacity that you're buying. We saw something that would have been a, a credits program, the, they call it per, performance credit mechanism. Basically, what that would have done would be a, a pay for performance, but sort of a set payment for performance. So you would trade these credits up to a year in advance. And then based on your actual performance, you would get paid out. You know, I think that's still kind of a, a version of a capacity market. We saw that that Berkshire proposal come up again, and then it got sort of turned down into a, a loan program for new natural gas. You know, I think there's a real mission to get new quote unquote steel in the ground for natural gas. And so we saw a, a loan program for that that did pass. I'll, I'll stop there unless you ask more questions or, or we can talk more. So let's talk a little bit more about the performance credits because it's a little bit different than a capacity market. It's an after performance payment, whereas in the capacity markets, you get a payment to basically be available generally. That's true. And sort of that design and what roadblocks it ran into, because I know that that was a really contentious point of discussion amongst participants. Yeah. And I, I will say it's not dead. It's still alive. You know, what, what came out of session was these quote unquote guardrails. So they didn't say you have to do this performance credit mechanism, but they said, if you do, here are the things you need to do. I think the problem with that is it, it still is a lot of uncertainty. I think, as you said, it's not a capacity payment up front. You get paid kind of in retrospect based on your performance. But I think that still creates a lot of uncertainty. I think, you know, when you're looking at contract revenues, I think those would still be merchant revenues. And so I, I think there's some uncertainty there. I think the uncertainty is bad for generators and for consumers. And the, the consumers are who raise a lot of issues with it because they don't know, you know, are they going to get what they pay for essentially? Because if there's this kind of high cost mechanism like, what are they really getting? Are, are people really going to build? Are they really going to have more reliability? And are those things that they need right now? Do you see any of these efforts as catalysts for storage? Like, how does storage fit into the morass here that we're creating as we try to figure our way through what the post-Yuri universe looks like in ERCOT? Yeah, a, cu a couple of them, I think, are, are catalysts. A couple of them, it's hard to find, you know, where, where storage fits. When we were talking about the performance credit mechanism, they do not want renewables to, to qualify for these credits. I think that's where you're introducing a little bit of a, a capacity, you know, payment or, or program there, even if it is pay for performance, because you aren't letting anybody and everybody perform. You're still having some requirements at the outset that say, no, we don't think you can perform. You're not the right type of capacity. And so I think that's where you get into some some of that that gray area. So there were different versions of the PCM that that didn't include storage. We ended up being included, you know, just all dispatchable generation. But I, th I think it's kind of a question of how to best use storage where it fits. Most events in ERCOT are less than two or less than four hours, and, and most meaning, you know, 97, not like 60%. And so you really can use storage in those tight hours, and so you should get paid for that performance. But I think it is new and you're trying to figure out, you know, there's criticisms of, of wind and solar. There's also criticisms, a lot of criticisms of, of gas and especially the older gas resources. And so you kind of have to figure out where the, the storage opportunities sit. 
we saw some language pass that was, it's a concept that they're calling firming. And the idea is that if your generation is not as reliable as a certain standard, then you should have to pay to to firm up to that standard. I think what they passed there is is a good catalyst for storage because they were really looking at wind and solar. Are you performing less than kind of the normal capacity contribution or thermal? Are you, you know, performing worse than the kind of average force outages and giving storage that opportunity for that kind of firming amount? Because we know you can turn it on when you need it and it's instantaneously responding. So I think things like that could be a catalyst, but there's still some areas where the education needs to be done to make sure it fits or it's being used to the best of its ability. But I think you want to do that for all technologies as well. So Caitlin, it's it's really interesting. Obviously, there's this massive transition happening and storage has been such a focal point of that. What other elements do you think really need to come together to be a catalyst for Jupiter? You know, what other changes in other markets? Like, how does this fit into sort of the bigger picture, taking us just a little bit out of Texas, but thinking bigger picture of the energy transition, where Jupiter is, how storage fits into this picture? What are we looking for for change in the rules in the U.S. to really make this productive for the consumer? That's a big question. I think... For storage, a lot of times we do still try to argue for technology neutral policy. And I think it goes along those lines, right? I think we we are different than than wind and solar because we can you can flip the switch and we turn on. We we are different than gas because you can flip the switch and we turn on immediately. You don't have to wait fifteen minutes or two hours. And so there's there can be some limitations too, right? We might only last four hours or eight hours. But I think it's a matter of educating, you know, the policymakers and the counterparties on how to best utilize those benefits, right? What products that looks like in the market? Is it, you know, some kind of credit that other, you know, resources are getting or that loads are getting for buying storage because it fits kind of in in good blocks of time? And then counterparties kind of understanding where that value is for them as well, right? Is it helping them hedge risk from, you know, a portfolio of renewables? Is it protecting customers during things like an ERCA when there there are those, you know, super peaks, those really spiky prices? And so I think there's some education that needs to be done. Do you feel like it's also like how to actually use batteries in these markets? Like what, what do they actually do, right? Because you raise a really good point is that they have characteristics of, renewables insofar as that they're not infinitely deliverable. They run out of charge, right? Like all batteries do, but also they're super flexible, right? Like your cell phone turns on in a second. So does a giant 200 megawatt battery. It also goes from being a generator to a load very, very quickly, right? Which both you always need to be balancing supply and demand is part of it. Just sort of like a place like ERCOT or a place like PGM getting their minds around sort of what are these operating characteristics that are pretty unique and how do we actually use them and value them? I think they're getting their minds around how they operate. I think it is hard. You know, this is a a weird metaphor, but when we were talking about like modeling electric cooling versus electric heat, I think storage is really hard to model because of all those things you said, right? Yeah. When when I was talking about your AC, right, you can you can know it's 110 degrees during the summer. So you can probably predict everybody's going to set their 
AC to cool 30 degrees. I don't think you can do that with storage, right? On, on a sunny day, you can say, you can probably predict all solar is going to be online with this, with storage on a sunny day. Well, at different hours, you know, I, I might be charging and discharging. My competitor will probably be charging and discharging at different hours and, and how much so. And then, you know, we, we would play in what's called insert services. And so, you know, Jupiter might play more in real-time energy than in the ancillary services, and somebody else might play more in ancillary services. So I think because there are so many different options for that behavior, I think people are well aware of what all those different options are. But modeling what that's going to look like as a whole when all of this technology comes online is is really difficult, I think. Yeah. And I think that is like one of the interesting questions, right? I know you guys to date have been really focused on standalone batteries, meaning that they're not integrated with other technologies, be it renewables or thermal. Do you think that that stays sort of the model or do we morph into a place where this firming concept becomes the main pathway for for batteries where they get coupled together with other types of resources to you know, the sum of the parts being better than uh, than the individual. Yeah, I think there's an argument for even in that firming concept, it doesn't need to be physically located together. I think you're still contracting with, with somebody who might not be right next to you. And in some cases, I think that's really good for hedging the risk. I, I think we will stay focused on standalone storage. I think we'll, we will look at, you know, co-located and, and we're looking at other technologies I, I think that is a kind of hard thing to understand about storage. I think it's, we aren't committed to lithium ion. We aren't committed to, you know, one or two hour batteries that only play in certain ancillary services. And ERCOT, the question I get, you know, most batteries get revenues and participate in the ancillary service called responsive reserve. And so what that means is it's not just regular energy, you have special qualifications, you get paid to be able to provide that service by hourly. You, you've been in day ahead. And so I get asked like, well, what are you guys going to do when that market gets flooded and the prices get low? We don't go into a business with, we're only going to do this and only make money from X. And that might be mm-hmm. different from other technologies if you think about it. And so I think that's what makes it a little bit hard for other people to understand too. We have all these other revenue opportunities that are, are probably bigger and better than just that answer service. So I think one question we definitely have to ask you, because I think our listeners would be unhappy with us if we didn't. There was a Senate hearing a few weeks ago and folks were asked, would it have been helpful for ERCOT to not be standalone to have interconnection to some neighbors? And obviously during winter storm Yuri, MISO was also very cold and got a lot of help from PJM. And during winter storm Elliot, PJM was very cold and got a lot of help from its neighbors. I would just love to hear your thoughts on is the standalone model beneficial to ERCOT? Yeah, I, I don't know that I am an expert or I know that I'm not an expert in, in what that reliability increase would do. And this is something where I've been really surprised that other people I consider experts and other people in the industry with lots of experience are super varied. I don't know, Mike, if you've had that experience too. You know, I, I had the honor of being part of a kind of an academic paper post Yuri that Dr. Michael Weber got me involved in, and one of the recommendations was look at interconnecting to other ISOs. Yep. And then I had a friend who's been in the industry for 30 years that that you probably know and know how I'll ask you after the podcast, who called and was like, that's idiotic. You need to get your name taken off this paper. <laughs> and so I've gotten the, you know, the kind of responses across the board. 
I think it's worth looking at. You know, I will say, I I don't think that it's like this nefarious thing where ERCOT is avoiding regulation when they're not part of FERC. You know, I, I see that criticism a lot, like on Twitter and from reporters. It's like, well, you're not part of the quote unquote national grid, which I don't think is a real thing. Right. Um, and so there's this perception we're like totally unfettered and unregulated. You know, we still... We're still under NERC, which is the national or the the North America reliability kind of monitor or council. And so I, I don't think that it's like this, we're running away with doing whatever we want thing that people perceive it to be. I think there are some benefits to being kind of a standalone. I think things like the competitive market, I think all the things we've done since Yuri, right? We've gone through all these different market design ideas adopted some, you know, accelerated some resources, adopted new weatherization standards. I don't know if you could get those through a FERC jurisdictional body that quickly, right? We, we got a lot of that stuff implemented within the same year that URI happened. And so I think that there's kind of an ability to move a lot quicker that can be beneficial. Mm-hmm. That's a good perspective. That's really interesting. Because I think it tends to be a politically hot topic. And so most of the answers on it are very vague. So that was that was a great perspective. That's one where it's like you really want to get in the Twitter fight when people are like connect to the national grid. It's like, well, what does tell me what that what means that? to you? <laughs> right. Do you mean the British utility, the national grid? Because <laughs> so. I mean, the UK is an island too. That is too funny. So. One of the things that we always like to ask our folks is to get into your crystal ball here and to tell us about the future. And how do you think the universe looks 20 years from now? No wrong answers. Think big. I don't know. How do we change? Does we look the same? What are your thoughts? I don't think we look the same. I'm I'm not a good crystal ball person. You know, after the presidential mm-hmm. elections, people always say, well, I'm not in the prediction business. And I would say I'm not in the <laughs> prediction business. I would say, I don't think things look the same. I don't think they're supposed to look the same. I would say, sure. you know, besides the plug into the national grid comment, that the, the comment is, you know, fix the grid. And sometimes there's an expletive in there. Mm-hmm. I think, yes, we should fix the problems that went on. But I don't think that there's ever a point where it's like, have you fixed the grid? Yes, right? You, you stamp yes and walk away. I just nailed it. Right. This is not like a set it and forget it thing. Mm-hmm. So I think it's kind of continually changing. And I think that's the problem. And so in 20 years, I don't think we, you know, put the grid of now on the shelf and like take out a different grid. I think it has to sort of evolve constantly to get there. Yeah. It sort of is that that constant churn, right? Of of, you know, how we react to things that are changing. I mean, one of the things that stands out for me, both in Texas and nationally, is data center load growth. Just the astounding amount of big loads that are moving in places as the internet expands exponentially out there. And what's very different about that, and I'm curious about your perspective on this too, is that typically when we think about load growth in these markets, it's like kind of ebbs with economic tides, Mm -hmm. right? And we're talking about like how many people are born every year, population growth in different places and stuff like that. (laughs) These data centers, like 500 megawatts can show up tomorrow kind of a situation, right? Very, very quickly, you look at these things getting installed. That is somewhat of a shock to the system, right? And to your point, that seems to be one of the biggest catalysts is like these, uh, these markets, the regulators are trying to figure out, wow, what do we do in an environment where we're seeing 
very targeted but very large changes on our system as a result of load growth like that. Yeah, I don't know. Where where do you think that load is going to be in 20 years? I'm going to ask you the question. So from my perspective, it's not going away, right? Like the internet, as far as I can tell, is only ever going to get larger until chat GPT just takes over <laughs> and we all kind of live in the matrix at some point in the not too distant future. So, so I think what you're seeing now is that there's like pockets that are associated with like build out of data centers for exogenous reasons, right? I mean, there's like fiber optic availability in the beltway, you know, where you see sort of a data center alley outside of DC, Texas, very cheap land, easy to site stuff. You see things going on there, similar dynamics up in, uh, in the Pacific Northwest. I don't think it stays as concentrated as it is because the companies that build okay. those things respond to economics the same way anyone does. So if it becomes super expensive to put a data center in Texas, they'll find somewhere else to put it. So I don't think it stops. I just think that it moves around, right? And it, it probably becomes more disparate than it is today. It's not nearly as concentrated in these places, but I, I, I just can't see a situation where we don't need more and more of that as just the internet becomes this ever increasing thing. It's weird that I've turned this into like a modeling podcast because I don't know anything about that. But I think <laughs> more than just more load, it has different characteristics, right? When you're talking about a data center load, that is the way they're using it is different than the population growth load because they don't need it necessarily like every day to live. They're not going to use the AC in the way I described a couple times. They're using mm -hmm. it for totally different purposes depending on you know, wh whatever they're making, they might be able to shut down whenever they want to. And so that's kind of harder to predict because it's not, you're getting this much extra firm load. It's, it's, you know, you're getting. Yeah. And I think what you're getting at is actually not just modeling, but also it's really incorporating the demand side, which we haven't really focused on doing a great job. You know, we were on a podcast with Travis Kabul and we were talking about smart meters, dumb rates, and you know, we were kind of jokingly, but really, I think our constant focus on supply and not enough on demand, we're going to have to address that issue at some point. It's just really hard to predict. I know I went through an exercise with ERCOT before Yuri, but right when COVID hit and because it's like, what is this going to do to how people are using energy? And so it's like the agricultural load stays the same. But like, part, you know, the non-agricultural mm -hmm. load in certain parts changes. And so it gets really complicated. And and you're right. I think you had a magic wand question on here that I don't think we got to. But there's a, like the smart meters. What did you say? Smart meters, the rates. Yes. There's like some infrastructure, I think, that needs to. That would be my question with the, the magic wand. I think, you know, we have the data, but making it work in real time, I think it's kind of a technology infrastructure problem. So I guess, would that be your, you know, if you had one wish and you ha could wave a magic wand and change anything, would that be your focus? I think so. I think it would be on the technology of who's running these systems, right? The the ERCOTs and the, the other folks. And again, not a criticism, but right, ba batteries responded instantaneously, but because of the way mm -hmm. they, they don't have instantaneously responding technology. So we have to ramp within five seconds, e even if we could do it in half a second. And so there's little things like that. Like we have all these smart readers, but to get that data, you know, to the right person who needs it to be able to operate it in real time, to have a signal from the grid where it's needed, you know, the, the criticized like lights on downtown Houston during Neary, 
Like there's just no way to get that information into like an actionable market design right now without kind of that that technology update, I think that's needed. Well, thank you. This has been an awesome podcast. I, it was really great to hear about all things Texas. I know that our listeners will really enjoy this because they've read about it in the press and you had such a refreshing perspective. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. So Caitlin, it's been eight months since we've talked and a lot has happened in ERCOT. Do you want to just give us a brief update since our recording as to what events you consider significant? Sure. And I think I want some guidance from you guys too. And personally, I had a baby in those eight months. So a lot is different in my memory. I was on leave, but a lot has happened. And especially talking about, I think we were in the beginning of summer. And so looking at summer issues is a lot different than now looking at winter issues. And I think we touched on that. I think that was a big theme of what we had recorded previously is pre-URI, everything in ERCOT was geared towards being a summer peaking system. And now we are looking at this winter peak too. So I think some of those issues just naturally change. In the summer, we were immediately post-legislative session. So we have had some time then. A lot of those bills took effect, I believe, September 1st. There was one that required a public vote was a ballot item that has happened. And a couple other things have happened as well. I think on the bigger picture or cop market, a lot of the discussion has continued to be around resource adequacy as you look at both summer and winter. So that ballot item was on, what is it called? The Texas Energy Fund. So essentially it's a fund to distribute grants and loans for new dispatchable, so new gas. And then I believe there's some money for microgrids as well. And that had to be voted on in November, and it was, and it went through. ERCOT has looked at some additional things for resource adequacy as well. They had put out in the fall an RFP for capacity, which I believe was fairly unprecedented. There is some controversy surrounding that. Some questions from the PUC commissioners on whether that conflicted with other legislative intended things. I think the resolution from the PUC side on that was to say that, yes, this is what they're calling a bridging solution for resource adequacy. So it would fall into the same bucket as ORDC changes and the PCM and need to come out of that same effort and same budget. And I believe the responses just weren't enough to follow through with it. And so ERCOT did end up canceling that RFP. So I think those are the big market-wide news things that have happened since. Yeah, definitely. Let's unpack a couple of those. One thing that I did want to just circle back to on the legislative side, Texas is a little unique in terms of the way that its legislative cycles work. And you're right, when we were talking to you a couple of months ago, we were right at the tail end of that legislative cycle. But correct me if I'm wrong here, my understanding is that the legislature then finishes up its cycle and then they go away for, is it two years where they're quiet? And so there's a pretty big gap between sort of all the things that have to get done at one legislative cycle and then all of the things that are lying in wait until that next cycle a couple of years down the road. Yeah, a year and a half because it's so it's a January to end of May session on odd years. So they would, in theory, be gone away. I will note, we were still in session, just electricity wasn't on the session. So after those, the governor can continue to call special sessions. 
but the special session is up to the governor. So it's whether the governor puts electricity on that agenda or not. And so however many subsequent special sessions we had, I think through October, electricity was not on the agenda for those. That's really helpful. So it does seem like there's a pretty long period of time between the bills and things that we saw come out towards the latter part of last year versus when we'll kick off on energy initiatives again. Yeah. Yeah, there's a long period of time. I wouldn't say that the work stops. I think even before URI, it's pretty typical for the legislature to have interim hearings. Typically, those are pre-summer, post-summer, maybe now pre-winter, and they have interim charges where they are studying something specifically. And then that's the time for the commission to start getting all those rulemakings to implement legislation and process. So tell us a little bit about the withdrawal of the RFP. What are your thoughts on that? Why don't we describe the RFP a little bit, Caitlin? Can you just give us a high level, maybe 30 seconds on the RFP and what ERCOT was shooting for? Yeah, I can give that. ERCOT issued an RFP, I believe, in October. They said they had run some analysis and they were looking at the risks of EEA and maybe ultimately load shed for this winter and that they were going to need more capacity I wouldn't want to say definitively that this has never been done, but I believe it was fairly unprecedented. It was allowed. Close to it has never been done, if it even has. That's highly, highly unusual. They had a mechanism for doing it. And I think that that is certainly part of their purview as the grid operators and ensuring reliability. I think the particular provision they used to do it in the past had been thought to be imminent emergency. We need this generation to serve load now, or can do what's in its power to get it, or whatever they need to in their power to get that generation. And then there was a lot of questions around it. They said they didn't really have a budget. I think probably the exercise was, as they said, put it out there and see how the market responds. Is there anything that ERCOT, the commission, or stakeholders should be doing to get more generation online faster. I think that's how I would put it. So what price would it take? How many megawatts could actually feasibly escalate in time? Would there be interconnection issues to solve? What kind of hurdles would need to be solved? So I think it was maybe a little bit of a market research item. What are the responses we're going to get? What do those megawatts look like? What price do they need? What other things do they need to get here faster? Got it. And my understanding is one of the areas that was of note or raised some eyebrows maybe as a way to say it was this idea that the RFP was limited to dispatchable generation and dispatchable is kind of an amorphous term, but it had been defined for purposes of the RFP. And some folks thought that that maybe was limiting the RFP to certain types of generation technologies that were out there. Any thoughts on that? I'd have to refresh my memory on that. I think that's probably right. I believe demand response was in included though. So load resources were included. I think energy storage was included, but I think they said they can sustain for six hours. And so I think to your point, that's not really defined anywhere else. I think they were probably talking about a definition of dispatchable or a definition of resource that was specific to that RFP. Are there any specific things that have happened more recently related to storage that were of note? Yes, we've been having some ongoing discussions with ERCOT on state of charge as it's concerned with storage. And so what that is, is 
storage is a duration limited technology. And the way you measure that is through its quote unquote state of charge, how much generation you have, how much load you have. And it's very dynamic. There's ways to change that up and down throughout different hours in ERCOT. ERCOT is trying to wrap their heads around how to put that into their systems because it is new and how they want to use that to just determine maybe provision of ancillary services. So that's been really an ongoing discussion. It probably got raised right after we recorded. I think it was probably late June or so. And that's continuing to be discussed at the commission and at ERCOT. Yeah, I think this is actually one of the more important conversations that is happening. I think you did a great job when we talked a few months ago talking about how batteries themselves are unique as a technology. They state of charge is one example of them, but they can instantaneously provide generation. They can instantaneously be demand. They have a limited duration, meaning once you've used the energy up in them, you have to charge them up again. And one of the things that is coming into focus for me across markets, but places like ERCOT and California ISO that have a relatively large population of batteries in the resource mix or tip of the spear here is how these systems are coming to grips with the unique nature of batteries. What does it mean to have a resource that has all of those different capabilities? Because if you think about it, they've never had that before. Demand response is using a certain amount of energy and it agrees to turn down and to use less of it. A generator, you can turn it on, it provides energy, you turn it off, it stops providing energy. This is almost a hybrid of both. And it feels like there's a natural tension as the markets, ERCOT in particular, are trying to figure out what to do with that and how to create rules, paradigms, market incentives that address the new way that this technology works. Is that how you're seeing the conversation play out down there? Yeah, I think I would agree with that. There's certainly very unique characteristics, and I think that's exactly right. One of these proposals, or the one that was most recently agreed upon, was you have the state of charge necessary at the top of the hour, and then what you would need required is linearly down from that top of the hour requirement down throughout the hour. Well, that sounds like that makes sense. But storage, you can flip from discharging to charging. So there's lots of different things that storage can do. And particularly if you have a fleet of storage resources that would change that, you might not go in that straight line down on state of charge. There's lots of things you can do that are allowed by ERCOT to increase your state of charge during the hour. So it's really hard to compare that, as you said, to maybe gas or coal that's on and necessarily is depleting their fuel source. And then maybe they get more or they have a large amount and it's just on or off either generation or load. I think the other thing I would say is we talked a lot about the energy-only market in ERCOT previously. I think there is a continuing struggle after URI because the premise of the energy-only market is you are relying on generators on their commercial decisions to get reliability. And I think that's worked. And I think that's worked really efficiently in most cases. There's some operational requirements as far as weatherization and things that we've talked about. But I think where you get the efficient pricing for consumers is in letting these businesses make their decisions and getting reliability from that. We see requirements on various things. There's now a firm fuel product, so a requirement to have a certain amount of fuel or certain fuel storage. Blackstart and other products have certain requirements for what you need and for what duration. But just in the energy market, it is relying on those decisions. And there's a lot of 
things you can do there. We have a day ahead market that's specifically designed that it's financial only. And so you don't even have a physical obligation there. So we've built a lot on market-based dynamics. I think what we're trying to do with storage and even with wind and solar to some extent is figure out where that line is on the operational requirements versus telling people how they need to make their economic or commercial decisions. I think PJM has been living this debate, it feels like, over and over again with their capacity (laughs) markets. And you're right. I mean, there is, how do we deal with the fact that we have to keep the lights on for everybody, but we still want to maintain the integrity of the market? I think part of the problem that we keep facing is sometimes the solution to high prices is high prices. And that's hasn't been a popular answer, but I think that is exactly what drives the investment that you're talking about so that we can normalize a little bit. Yeah. And I think it's a matter of doing that in a way that's natural to the market. I did a little bit of a historical project in ERCOT recently, and somebody was talking about resource adequacy. And I think to what you're saying, the cure for high prices is high prices. Sometimes the cause of low prices is low prices. Because I think in ERCOT, particularly where some of this started is when maybe we had an overbuild of gas. So maybe the signals going to gas however many years ago weren't really the right signals. So then there was an overbuild and then there was a natural over exit. So I think as you consider what you need for reliability, you also have to consider the cause and effect down the line for the market and how that is ultimately going to affect reliability. Right. It's really regulatory certainty. I think at the end of the day, what you're talking about is the pendulum swinging too far as opposed to the market just naturally reacting. I think at the heart of that is regulatory uncertainty in our business. Yeah. It's a tricky gambit because in a certain sense, You can be very draconian with these types of rules and you can say, you must do X when I tell you to, in order to be able to access my market, you must be capable of doing these things for these durations and things like that. And in a certain sense, you'll get a product that will do the things that you have directed them to do. You won't necessarily get the creativity and things like that, that really markets bring to the table where folks find different solutions, where the risk of those decisions as opposed to putting those risks onto consumers. But that is a fine line to create those incentives that get you the results that you want without those draconian measures. And I feel like where ERCOT is right now, ERCOT had always, up until Yuri, been like the shining example of laissez-faire politics and market design, where we're just going to let you do whatever you want to, and hopefully we're going to create the economic price signals that get the stuff that we need. Yuri happens, and it created this existential crisis almost, where like, oh, can we still continue to be that light in the way that we create these measures? And where I feel like you're saying ERCOT is going now, and then Noha, I think you're echoing here, is this idea of What does the regulatory environment look like? If we're going to place these additional rules on folks, how are we going to do that but maintain the efficiencies that ERCOT has been good at delivering to ratepayers over its existence? I might take issue with that a little bit. I don't think before, Yuri, we were like reliability wild west. Oh, yeah. No, I didn't mean that. Certainly, maybe markets wild west, but (laughs) there were things in place and there's market mechanisms in place. There's reliability unit commitment. There's that provision we talked about that existed before the RFP where ERCOT has some powers if there's imminent threats to not being able to serve load. The other thing I would mention is one of the fine lines there 
is between qualification requirements. I think it is appropriate, and we would agree with ERCOT being able to say, to provide this service or to play in our market, you need to have these qualifications. You need to have these duration requirements, or you need to have these weatherization requirements or whatever. I think where we get into some tension is not just the qualifications you need, but actually day-to-day how do you need to operate your resource? Because I would say that I think that's antithetical to the market to say, you can be in this market, but you have to operate exactly like that. If you're talking about that, to me, that sounds more like a capacity market. It sounds more like maybe if that's what you want, you should have a must-offer requirement for certain hours. And so I think that's where you get some tension on the line being qualification requirements. That's appropriate does ensure reliability, but the mandate on how it is that you operate your resource in the market, I think is more antithetical to the energy-only market. Definitely. I agree. The qualification criteria makes a ton of sense to me that we would use those types of rules. But yeah, the operations side is it. I mean, I circle back to we're learning in real time how to use these things. And it feels like there's an element of this where they're trying to build the plane while they're flying it. And that seems to be creating a lot of the challenges that we're seeing in ERCOT and a lot of that regulatory uncertainty that Noha correctly pointed out. I think I would agree with that. And I think they're trying to build a lot of different pieces of the plane while, while flying it. I think we talked a lot about a lot (laughs) of different posterior reforms, but there's also technical infrastructure things that need to be updated. We have a system upgrade we need to do, and we still need to go to real-time co-optimization. And that's a big, tangible thing to get the time and staff and vendors in place to go to those systems. And it does put you at a little bit of a disadvantage prior to that as you get new technologies that maybe the old systems that were built when storage on the grid wasn't even contemplated just can't handle. It's interesting to me sometimes when I interact with exchanges versus interact with the ISOs, there is just a big delay in adopting new technology. And part of that is some of that stuff is outsourced to vendors, like you mentioned. And the ISOs is the delay? Yeah, just their backend systems. And sometimes I think it is unfortunate because... The RTOs and ISOs could be a great testing ground of many of those technologies in our industry. And I'm not saying they have to deploy it right away, but they could certainly be a beta for it. And that doesn't happen because they are so resource constrained. I feel bad sometimes for RTO ISO staff because they're working with limited tools. I don't have the solution for that. I know there was a magic wand question last time, and maybe the podcast is an advertisement for everybody to go work for their local ISO. But (laughs) I think that that has been an issue. And I think they tend to be very resource constrained. And that is hard to keep up with how fast, as you said, like a normal exchange or market moves. I tend to agree. I've had that conversation with a number of the different ISOs and RTOs, even had the conversation that like, look, if money is the problem, there is tangible value to efficiency. My clients are open to paying for things if they see the value proposition. So let's not let dollars necessarily stand in the way of these types of improvements. Because look, at the end of the day, if you get a better, faster, stronger mousetrap out of this, a more efficient market, faster interconnection processes, whatever, there are real dollars there. But it does seem to be that there's this combination of, I think, the resource constraints, just the human power, FTEs and things like that. 
there also does feel like there's a cultural component to it too, where these tend to be slower moving, slower acting entities. Whereas when I think about the storage space that is out there and is emerging is you're seeing a very rapid embracing of technology, software platforms, optimization types of models amongst whether it's a portfolio of batteries or it's batteries and other resources, maybe renewables and things. That seems to be an area where there just seems to be an explosion of attention in terms of bolting software onto these things. Makes a lot of sense because batteries work with software all the time, whether it's your Tesla or your cell phone. And it seems like that's an area that is expanding pretty rapidly on our grid and in Texas particularly. Do you feel like that's different than past explosions of renewable expansion? I do think it is. Yeah, because I mean, to be honest with you, renewable resources are unique insofar as their fuel source is not always available. So you got to figure out what to do with solar resources at night or fluctuations in wind, but they still look like generators. They're either generating or they're not, which you can get a solar curve or a wind curve versus a battery where you're saying, I'm going to optimize to charge at the cheapest points of time and discharge at the most expensive points of time. I'm going to map load and all these different things, optimize between ancillary services and energy. A computer brain can do a billion different iterations of that kind of stuff in seconds, which is very different than what I think that we've designed these systems to do, thinking about conventional generators. So I feel like it's the capabilities meeting, like the software seems like such an obvious answer almost, which is different, I think, than other technologies. Yeah, I agree. I think not just that it's only a generator and not a load, but I think the behavior you just characterized is more homogenous. Solar is going to be on when the sun's shining, and maybe that's a little bit different in West Texas than it is in North Zone, Texas. And same with wind. It's when the wind's blowing, maybe that's different coastal and different West Texas. But you can do it by geography. With storage, I think you can't say, and even in these discussions we've had on the state of charge regulation, I think what is confusing for the industry and for people outside looking is there's really different points of views within the industry. And I think that's because of those varied capabilities and characteristics of storage. The way we want to get revenue might not be the same as somebody else with storage because of different durations, especially siting plays into whether you're doing energy arbitrage or different types of ancillary services. And so I think that's where maybe there's a lag too for people to understand, oh, this isn't something where everybody doing storage is operating their storage the same way. I think more so than any other technology we've seen you get those differences within the industry. Such a great point because storage is the latest example of this, but we do tend to lump things together into categories. All battery owner operators are the same. They're not. The same way that any type of technology or market participant are different. You can have similarities, but, but certainly not identical. That's a great point about how the industry is probably more dynamic than I think folks appreciate as we're trying to integrate these things into our markets. I think that's been hard for the industry too, because I think a lot of storage people have a background from especially solar and they think we're all going to operate the same way. We should all be friends and we should all be friends, but I think we're not all going <laughs> to operate the same way. And I think that goes to what I was saying. It's like, yes, it's great if we all have the same qualifications, but I don't want anyone else, whether it be ERCOT or another storage company telling us you should operate in this straight line or you should operate this way. I don't think we would want to impose that on another storage company either. It is interesting because I think that battery is the beginning of this. 
of the ISOs really having to learn to embrace what's ahead of them. I think we're going to see more sophisticated demand response. I think we're going to see hydro. I mean, I think the world's going to look very different in the next 10 years. I mean, there's a lot of academic work right now being done on various technologies. Do you think there's lessons to be learned, though, from integration of wind or solar or anything like that? Yes, but I think there will be more lessons to be learned actually from integration of storage for the reasons that Mike highlighted. And I agree. I think that your point on it's hard for everybody to grapple with a resource that feels infinitely capable of doing anything that you want it to be. In a certain sense, you can almost imagine batteries. If you were to go just a straight trader problem, it's like having a gas storage and pooling facility. And so now I've got an option to warehouse some electrons over here and use them at a different point in time. And if you were a trader, it's the physical manifestation of that, which up and until very recently, you can't really store electrons. Now you can. So that's a thing that batteries enable that we had pumped hydro, but otherwise this broad-based deployable resource that allows us to time shift electrons. Yeah, that's an entirely different paradigm we've had today. And so it is daunting and interesting to look at a resource. And having been involved with battery deployment across the country for the last better part of 15 years, at the beginning when I got involved in this stuff, it sounded fake because anytime you talk to somebody about a new technology, of course it can do everything on the planet. Like, yeah, it'll make you French fries. Yeah. You're like, imagine your gas store goes up and down during the day. (laughs) Right, exactly. But as you have gotten into it, and my experience with these things have matured, it is fair to say that they can do all sorts of different things. You can make them as long duration as the economic incentives will allow you to, or a very short duration if you want to. There's so many decisions that folks need to make. And it's almost easier to say, cool, you turn the generator on, electrons come out. I can figure that out. Whether it's wind or solar, we can get there. When you give me an infinite number of use cases and possibilities, it gets much, much harder to rationalize that. And I agree with Noha. I think you can find all sorts of ways that it's plausible to fit these things into our energy ecosystem how they get there. I think there's a lot to learn. I think there's also a lot of risk there. And I think it's important that we have these types of conversations now. To know how's a great point. I think you got to look forward because these things are coming in mass. And I think in many ways, I feel like we're behind the eight ball in the way that we treat them in the markets and in our reliability paradigms. Do you mean risk to the industry or what kind of risks are you referring to? I think about reliability risks, honestly, and it has nothing to do with the innate characteristics of batteries generally. I think that they're great machines, but let's say you have 10,000 megawatts of them one day in ERCOT and you're going to use them. If you push the button on all of them in hour number one and they all run out of charge in hour number two, now you not only have 10,000 megawatts less generation, you have 10,000 megawatts more load and something has to be producing electrons for you to fill the batteries back up. We saw during Winter Storm Elliott that PJM had that problem. They had transmission constraints and lack of energy. They were counting on 10 gigs of pumped hydro storage that they used overnight on the 23rd of December. They didn't have available on the 24th when they needed it. And I think that's a microcosm example of how you need to get this stuff right because how you use it matters. And if you have a portfolio of them, you don't necessarily want to use them all at once because maybe you need some later on at different points in time. And that's just a very different way of imagining our system. I think system operators basically look at least expensive, best likely to create the reliability solution I need, push the button. And I think it's a more dynamic calculus with these things. I think that's right. I wouldn't want to say, and I would want to correct people, 
I don't think it's this constant inherent risk every time you have an event that's over an hour. But I think there's education to be done there on what is the risk? How are they going to behave? Who's going to discharge in what hour? Who's going to provide an ancillary service? And, you know, to the plane metaphor, there's just so many things changing on the grid. Somebody raised a point to me yesterday in ERCOT, we have a proliferation of the Bitcoin or the large data center loads. And so a problem that you might not have had in the past is a load trip where you all of a sudden have a lot less load than you did instantaneously. So that's a situation where you might want a bunch of batteries to be able to charge. To charge, yeah, to make up for the lock of load, sure. But it's hard to get that certainty. You might want that product available for a bunch of batteries to charge when you have that down ramping issue. But I think it's a matter of trying to make sure with all the different changes, regulatory, weather, and different technologies that it's fitting together cohesively. That's such a great example because we don't typically call demand on. Demand just is a thing that we're planning for. It looks like a curve and there's demand response so you can tell it to stop curtailing, but it's not like you say, great, give me more load. It's such a good example, Caitlin, is you could do that. You could say, oh, big data center went down or it stopped mining Bitcoin because prices for Bitcoin weren't good enough for it have the batteries charged, make up for that load until we can rebalance the system. So yeah, great example how different that is. Well, if they have a trip, just like a generator would, if they have a technology trip that takes them off instantaneously, the size of these, that's like a whole city going down instantaneously. And so there could be a product for that. It's just figuring out the expectations for all of that. Honestly, I think with AI, that's going to get worse. It's just interesting because what I'm hearing you say is we need to improve basically our power flow models and our forecasting, both things we've really struggled with over the last five to seven years as an industry. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. A lot of change in front of us. (laughs) I don't have a solution for that either. I feel like we should revisit this in 10 years. I know this could be a runner, but I actually like that we get the chance to revisit this again and we get to ask you the magic wand question again. Our two big picture questions are, where do you see the world going from here? And what does it look like to you 10 years in the future? So how do you feel about the future now with the benefit of eight months more experience? I think I would give the same non-answer. And I do think the same way you guys raised it today. Yes, I do agree the grid is going to look totally different in 10 years. As we view it, as we're working, I think it's going to be gradual or gradual to some extent. It's not like in 10 more years, what I said last time was take a new grid off the shelf and put it in place. So I think it's going to feel more gradual. So I don't have the answer there. The magic wand, I think that I said last time was the technology infrastructure update. All that happened instantaneously, which I think we agreed with. And I think what we are adding this time is more staffing for ISOs, which I'm sure they'll appreciate. What about you guys? Can I ask you? Or do you answer this every episode? We don't. I don't think anybody's ever asked us. Okay, Mike, you go first. No way. Absolutely. You got to go, Nohan. Go ahead, take it. What do you think? I think if I had a magic wand, I would have more collaboration between the states and the federal government. I think that has been a real pain point in our industry, particularly for multi-state ISOs, is trying to appease all these different state interests. And then on top of that, we're trying to manage a layer of operation And we frankly, I think, need market expansion. So I think getting the states on board with that 
we're starting to see some of this in the West. I mean, when I first started, the idea of a Western RTO, people would laugh you out of the room. We did not think we would see this kind of progress and just approved Kaisa's EDM proposal, which is not my ideal iteration, but it is a step in the right direction. Who would have thought SPP would be vying for that five or six years ago? So I think we've seen a lot of progress, but I think that is the one thing that is really difficult for businesses to solve is the friction between state and federal. Do you think that's collaboration necessarily, or do you think that's maybe isolating some of the political stuff out of certain ISO conversations or something like that? You know, every area is so different. I mean, I think this is why FERC has always said regional differences, regional differences. And I think Order 2000 was a step ahead of its time. I guess maybe a spin on our question. If I had one wish, my wish would be to go back in time. And if they were successful with standard market design, okay, what does that look like today? How would our world be different? I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, there's the gas markets have a universal market and folks that transact in that market like it a lot. It is a lot simpler because it works the same way in California as it works in Maine. And the times are different because the time zones change. But other than that, it's the same rules. That would be an interesting one. But it's harder to affect change in that huge monolith gas market. Yeah. And I think there's reasons why, like regional differences, it doesn't not make sense. It just makes it more complicated because you have to get lots of different folks on board and okay with these things and you naturally create seams and stuff. But yeah, I mean, there's reasons why things are different in other parts of the country than they are both from an energy makeup and from a politics makeup. And Pat Wood is the best. Have you had him on this? You need to have Pat Wood on. Oh, we'd love to. I don't know him well, but I would love to have him on. So now we'll put it in the universe and I'll email him. So (laughs) to be clear, I'm not saying that my wish was not a panacea. I would just be really curious to compare both worlds. So many good questions, Caitlin. And I'm really excited that you're interviewing us because (laughs) this is fun. I've never done this before. I'm always the guy asking the questions. Exchanging glances as I start to ask questions. Perfect. I was like, yeah, we give her a little space and all of a sudden she runs with it. I love it. So I was at a state utility commission before I moved over to the private sector. And one of the first cases that I got handed, because when you work for a state, basically, if there are three cases and there are three of us, everybody gets one because that's just the way it goes. It didn't matter that I was still in law school at the time and didn't have any idea what I was doing. I just happened to be a warm body that they could hand a case to. And that ended up going all the way to the Supreme Court for Talon versus Hughes. And it was essentially a argument over state and federal jurisdiction and what the states can and can't do. So my entire career, and we still fight over this stuff constantly throughout these markets. So it's followed me from basically day one till now. I think that there's an element of this where it just doesn't matter if it's the energy space or anything else out there, wherever we draw a line, whether it's the fence between you and your neighbor's yard, whether it is the line between state and federal jurisdiction, it's in human nature that as soon as we draw a line between something, we immediately turn to fighting over where we drew the line. And that's just innate. Those spheres are natural tension points for folks. So I think that there's a political component of it, but I think there's just that natural element of this. I think that that's one of the areas that creates those types of challenges. On your question, is the world going to be very different 10 years from now or incremental? I think it's going to be way different, way sooner. And I think that for me, it's about the rise of tech and artificial intelligence. 
I think it'll be different, but I think as we experience it incrementally, I think that's why it's hard for me to answer the question because it's not like I'm going to take a 10-year nap and wake up and be like, oh, this is weird. (laughs) It's going to happen gradually. That's fair, but I feel like the pace of change is going to be exponential. Last year, Microsoft invested, I think I heard $12 billion in AI, cloud computing platform. That's a big bet from a really, really big company. And if you think about the energy system being limiting to that investment, to that trajectory for a firm like that, that's not an energy problem for them. That's a top box problem for them as an organization. I don't have stats for their counterparts, the Amazons and others of the world, but I'm confident that they are probably investing at similar levels in this stuff. I heard a commercial today for a major automobile manufacturer that was marketing AI-enabled cars. And so we're apparently going to plug AI into everything, which means you need infinite amounts more computing, and it's going to radically change the grid. To your point on the data centers, the Bitcoin mining is going to be an afterthought, I think, very soon as we start to see the hyperscalers building that out. And that's going to be a really big difference. PGM right now is forecasting adding 20 plus thousand megawatts of load over the next decade to their system. That's like adding a whole new Virginia to PGM. I don't think they've ever seen load growth like that. And I think that's going to become a natural tension point because car companies, cell phone companies, the folks that run the internet, like the Microsofts and those types of entities of the world, aren't going to allow this trend to stop because the energy system's not ready for them. And so it's going to force incremental changes, I think, which would be my wish. I think that in our industry, we are way more reactive than we are proactive. We tend to say, okay, we thought this was going to work. We had a Yuri or an Elliot or some other event, and it didn't work. And now here's how we're going to react to that and hope that something we're going to do is going to happen in the future. We don't take and create a strategic plan where regardless of the fact that we know that we're going to be wrong about predicting the future, where we're going to think about these radically different futures and be more proactive enough, in my view. So that would be what I would do. I would cast our vision forward as opposed to being as reactionary as we are. I think that might be driven by what you're saying, though, because I think as you get those Microsoft, Google having all that load that they commercially depend on, that creates a lot more sophisticated of a load voice and making sure I get this energy, the grid is proactive. Because when I think about policymaking, I think that's the balance maybe we need a little bit more of is a consumer load voice that's very sophisticated or as closer to sophisticated as, as generators are to influence the policy that way. Because you get more of those voices with big commercial backing, what you said might lead to itself. Having more of that load might lead to more of a proactive versus reactive grid. I agree. And hopefully more regulatory certainty. Because I think that's something all those sophisticated voices keep saying is, look, capital is not that difficult. It wants to know what the rules are, and it wants a defined period of time for those rules. I'm just a person who's more comfortable with regulatory uncertainty. I've said it a bunch of times on this podcast and other things because I just don't believe market design is a set it and forget it. So you're constantly need to be changing and working on the policy. And I know that's different from what you're saying, but it's really hard to say this is certain and we're not going back to it for a couple of years. And I don't think I would want to do that, but I think that might be a personal more comfort with regulatory uncertainty than most people. You can make incremental improvements when you change the paradigm on people. People just inherently build that risk into their investment decisions. I don't think that's ultimately good for the consumer, which is really why we started these markets 
But I agree with you. You can't say I'm not going to make any improvements, but how you progress in those improvements and how far, again, that pendulum swinging, how far that happens and how often that happens is critical. I agree with that too. All right, guys, we've covered way more than eight months. <laughs> I went way over and interviewed you guys. No, that was terrific. No, this was Honestly, great. this was great. You should have Pat Wood on. He's great. I'd love to. That would be terrific. I don't have any connections to him. So if you would be willing to facilitate it, we'd love that. I'm pretty close with him. Yeah, that would be great. That would be terrific. Well, Caitlin, I think we've covered a lot of really exciting updates. Thanks for joining us again for this recording session. It was really fascinating. And like Mike said, it's the first time somebody's asked us questions and it was very enjoyable. So thanks for taking the time. Thank you. You've been listening to No Power, hosted by Noha Sidholm and Michael Borgatti. Head on over to nopowershow.com, that's K-N-O-W, where you can subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you next time on No Power.